It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This is episode 158. This is a question and answer session from our recent pain and rehab seminar in Gainesville, Florida with doctors Derek Miles and Michael Ray. A few announcements first. Our next pain and rehab seminar is going to be in Oregon, March 2022. And our next regular seminar is going to be at uh, the Ghost Gym in Miami, Florida. That's January of 2022. We'll also be in Philadelphia in March. So we hope to see you at one of those seminars. Let's hop into this week's podcast. Again, it's a Q&A from a recent pain and rehab seminar in Gainesville, Florida. A fair amount of evidence presented about treating OA surrounding muscle strengthening. Strengthening improved both function and pain scores. Do you think the reduction in pain is due to being stronger, the belief that I'm doing something that helps, getting healthier in general, or something else? Yes. All of, All of those things. Uh, it certainly isn't correlated only with uh, getting stronger, but there does seem to be some effect. I mean, if you think about it, that would mean if you have OA as a power lifter, you should be golden. Um, but so there's obviously some other factors to it, but I don't know that we should even really frame it as there is this like magic metric of strength we're aiming for. A lot of times I just have the like, we're trying to increase capacity and that's gonna come from different means along the way like I, I wish there was some uh magic metric if we all hit then the probability of us having symptoms goes down exponentially i have nothing to add to that shocking easy enough <clears throat> what two things do you wish mds pts dcs all agreed upon and implemented in clinical practice uh, person-centered care was the first thing that came to mind when I read this question earlier and just accepting like we are health educators first and foremost and all of us regardless of our title are capable of being educational resources for our patients on a wide variety of topics my hope like when I teach my grad students is try to impress upon them that you are a healthcare professional first what is health based on how we defined it and talked about it this weekend a lot of times it's your adaptability to the situation you find yourself in are the things that we can do to help facilitate their pursuit of health or whatever they're seeing us for in regards to what they're dealing with. That would probably be like the one thing I could pick. Um, unsurprisingly, I would likely go with physical activity being a good thing and the whole movement optimism side. Uh, I, when we look at the data on all of this, it's just really low hanging fruit for overall societal health to you know be more active try and meet these guidelines do something instead of just continuing to say something is bad for you and if you don't move a certain way it's going to be problematic so i mean that certainly would be um, my number one my number two because it's me is that it's safe for youth to resistance train um i think that's just the hill i'm going to die on at this point in my career what? Okay. Uh, question. Distinguishing between pain that you can push through versus pain that requires change. Ooh. Um, it depends. 
on the individual, the tasks that they're engaging with, the environment, contextual factor, factors matter. So it's tough. Uh, I usually tell the person, you like, we want things to be tolerable for you. And if it's reaching a point of intolerance, we should probably make a change. A lot of times, especially in the training scenario, someone may experience like acute onset pain with, say, the knee while squatting. Instead of like immediately freaking out and wanting to stop squatting, maybe we can try to repeat that set at a lower load. We could do the same load. We could do a different movement. Like we have a lot of options to change things without drastically changing the entire program. So I usually also say to a lot of remote clients we work with, give it a few days. Let's see what happens, which makes it really well, works really well when we have auto regulation in place because they feel in control of the situation to say, well, RPE also includes my symptomatic experience. Today, that's my rate limiting step. Sounds like I need to adjust my load. I don't need to go talk to Michael or Derek or anyone else on our team about that. I have self-efficacy to make that change on my own. And then if it's something that happens at every session or every time you go to do that movement, then I would probably make more long-term changes to programming. But remember the variables we have at play, frequency, volume, and intensity are the things that we can manipulate. If that's not getting us through, then we probably need to make changes to the type of activity we're doing or a particular exercise. And then although we focus a lot on dosage of activity, remember multifactorial experience. How have they been sleeping? How have they been eating? What's their stress levels like? So on and so forth. So I don't have a very tangible, like, if this happens, do this. But I can say auto-regulation helps them decide when do they need to make changes to their programming. <clears throat> yeah, I'd probably take that a little bit further and say uh, I agree wholeheartedly on the auto-regulation, but it's really what you anchor it to. And how I tend to frame it to all of my athletes is in, instead of the normal anchor we have of could you do two more reps for RPE8, should you do two more reps? And a lot of times we know, like, I, I feel like a lot of times by the time this question comes out, you know it's a bad idea. And you're looking for someone to validate your bad idea. And it, framing that as should tends to be beneficial. Now, on the other side of it, uh, I think there is certainly the the clients and athletes who there is just increased vigilance and it is like showing them that they can do things and there it when you're asking that question from that perspective um it's really giving people permission to go do it yeah i agree i especially like the could you versus should you and often use that discussion even for myself like could i do another single on the snatch probably should i probably not I've had a wave of uh, coaches recently show up for consults and issues going on. And my favorite thing to do with them is have them go through their program and ask how good of an idea would this be if you gave this to one of your clients. That tends to solve a lot of training problems. Um, so as a new clinician, what would be three snippets of advice? Ooh. Uh, the sooner you embrace uncertainty and that we don't have all the answers, the much easier it is to be comfortable in said uncertainty, right? Uh, and that's probably one of the hardest things for a new clinician to accept because the way we're taught and indoctrinated in especially healthcare schools is that we have all the answers, we're the experts, that's why people are seeing us. And so if we could accept like we have some of the answers, but there's a lot of questions that remain 
and we should be comfortable in knowing that we don't have all the answers. But based on the information we have, how do we best help the person in front of us while doing as little harm as possible? And I'm fully comfortable saying in that regard, <coughs> as far as harm, the narratives that we provide and the behaviors we instill could be a positive or negative for that person's trajectory through healthcare. Is that three or one? Uh, I tuned you out. That's fine. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> for a new clinician, meet a lot of people. Um, go to these type things. Hit CSM if you're a physical therapist. Uh, the old school clinicians are a lot more approachable than you probably perceive them to be. And, you know, I, I can't overstate how much, like, showing up matters. And, and that sounds really simplistic, but... You know, a lot of the reason I've been able to get where I am is because I reached out and said, hey, man, you mind if I tag along for this? And I've gotten to network a lot as a result. There is that balance between, you know, putting yourself out there and maybe sticking your foot in your mouth or, you know, staying reserved. But if you don't make these connections, then, like, you kind of paint yourself into a corner. We're all going to have that initial imposter syndrome. I'm 14 years out, and I still go through periods of it daily. And the only way I think you get around that is by just continuing to you know, meet new people, have these conversations. And that's part of why even today like, I try to be explicit about go with another group when you're discussing some of the case studies we were going over. Because if we just constantly surround ourselves with all of our friends and the people who think like us, then, like, how do you change your mind? Yeah, I agree. How do we address the uncertainty of pain and create buy-in when six feet away they can hear clinicians in the same profession making false promises? Try and win over those clinicians saying that. Um, you're not going to do it all the time. But you can also lead by example. And you have to be willing to stand your moral ground on this. And I think that is the hardest part. It's, it's not easy. It's not fun in a lot of instances either. But really, if you look at it, the main service we're offering is education, which means like your currency is your word. And if you really want to add value to that, it is being careful with what you say and making sure what you're conveying to your patients or your clients has real weight to it. And you know, everybody wants to change stuff until it comes time to do the work, and then you know, it's not the same conversation anymore. Yeah, well, I like the lead by example part because I imagine, especially if it's a busier clinic, at some point they're going to overhear what you're saying and doing and be like, hmm, that's different than the things I'm saying and doing. Why do they do that? And hopefully they talk to you, which is a point where you can build your relationship with them. I'm also not above just being like, hey, if we work together. Would you like to go grab a beer and talk about this? Forge many a friendships just by going to get a beer with someone and talking through shit with them, which is outside of the clinic setting. It makes it a little bit more relaxed to figure out why do they do what they do. Yeah, I think you can't lead with the ridiculously hard conversations. And I've said on a couple of different platforms, uh, me and some of my friends every Friday night used to sit around a table and argue about who was better, Biggie or Tupac. And it's Biggie, obviously. 
but really there isn't a right answer to it other than biggie obviously but what happens is when you start having those arguments over things that don't really matter it becomes easier to turn it into like the hard conversations and it is like reps in the tank like i've had so many reps of debating biggie and tupac that like having a dry needling conversation like all right like i've I've danced this rodeo plenty of times and and you have to have kind of the the man in the arena approach to it uh i like this one for those of us who are training clients in gyms if we have a client who reports acute pain in the middle of a training session what checklist do you go through to determine if they need to be referred out or are okay to continue to train with appropriate modifications I'm actually curious to what you say on this one first. You know, part of the reason I like it is I don't know that I've explicitly thought through what my checklist is. We've had this conversation a little bit just related to like the certificate or the certification of figuring out like what would we want personal trainers to have that are tangible, actionable items to screen folks with, which turns out a lot harder of a question to answer than I initially thought it would be. Yeah, I think it's why it's a good question, because even with something like if you had a muscle injury, like we talked about, doesn't necessitate imaging unless it's an adolescent patient. And is it going to affect care or like, or are we going to have to change things along the way? You know, if, if someone uh, drops a I'll see, we'll see if Kim listens to this podcast. If uh, your wife happens to drop a 35 pound kettlebell on her foot while she's training, uh, probably need to end the session and go get an x-ray there. But for most things, you know, I think you just learn it with reps and, I'm trying to think of an instance where I had an athlete get injured around me and like I've modified training sessions, but I can't recall one other than like true trauma things falling. The only thing that like comes to mind is the recent bodybuilder who was doing incline bench and did way too much weight and his pec major just detached while pressing. That's a full stop. I mean, you could keep trying to go. I wouldn't recommend it, but probably time to go to the hospital at that point i think that falls in my trauma category yeah yeah um yeah i'll be interested after we go through this today if anyone has a really good answer to this i I will probably spend the next five days trying to work through a checklist now um if you were putting together a pe program for elementary and middle school how would you structure 20 to 30 student physical activity groups for two times a week so there's actually a lot of data on this uh, and uh there's a couple of different schools of thought at that age well i'm going to take it in two forms in elementary school it, it does need to be more in the fundamentals and learning like motor patterns and motor control um, so i think you can do small group things where you're hitting the fundamental movement skills kicking throwing you know hopping jumping landing and that's pretty easy to do at the elementary level and then probably setting up some games where you know you can play four on four of kick the deflated soccer ball around um by the time you're getting in middle school for if we're talking about like i have a completely open table on this like it's time to get out the squat racks and the barbells and you know we're gonna start picking up some things and 
I think this kind of even gets into the conversation. I don't know if it'll come out of like how much technique matters, but part of this, if you're doing it uh, to where, you know, not only are you the one lifting, but you're watching your peers lift and you're going to get some coaching experience on what's good, what's permissible and what's a bad idea. So I, I think there, like you kind of self fulfill some of the, the technical components to it. I have nothing to add. Yeah, I think that one's pretty much a me question. Um, Are you familiar with the work of Dr. John Sarno, the mind-body prescription? Do you feel his approach is beneficial with patients, clients who are dealing with chronic pain? I'm not familiar enough with it to invalidate it or validate it. I know who Sarno is. I've not read his specific works, so I can't weigh in on this. Um, I'm familiar enough with it to where I have recommended it to a few people i do not think under any circumstances is a panacea but it is a lens that you know you can broach some conversations with um that's really all i have on that um if you were supreme ruler of the universe we would be screwed yeah how would you structure research for passive modalities (laughs) well maybe we wouldn't be screwed or other modalities, interventions for that matter? Conduct good quality research. Don't go into it with a strong bias that you're trying to prove. Don't manipulate statistical analyses to get the outcome you're looking for. Maybe move the goal and the outcomes that you're valuing to something else other than a reduction in a quantitative pain metric. I could go on. Like Those are just the immediate things that come to mind. It, it, the difficult part of this is like, in my opinion, we fundamentally approach this discussion in the wrong manner, which then leads to not great questions that we try to investigate, which then leads to not great research that we then make very confident decisions from, even though it's low quality research. And so like the shift needs to be, how do we do other things like mixed methodology research, qualitative studies to see what should we actually be doing? What do people actually value? And how do we change the things that they want to improve at over time? Not what can I do to you as a passive object, which is how most interventional based studies are done. Um, if I'm supreme ruler of the universe, um, I'll put I'll throw a shot across the bow here. I would make you do research before you're allowed to create a continuing education class for your passive modality. I think that would stop a lot of things out of the gate. Um, I. I am frankly sick of arguing with humans who tell me that they'll get to the research at some point and research costs money when on their website, they have all the professional teams that they keep pushing this stuff on. And I can do the math on the money they're making off these courses pretty quick. It's not hard to do a study off of that. I think it's almost the could versus should. They know it doesn't work the way they think it works. And, and frankly, uh, I would probably uh, make them enroll me as a subject in some of these studies. Because once again, if it has a physiological effect, I, I can promise you, you start doing this stuff on me, the uh, psychosocial is eliminated. You are not getting that effect. It is truly biological, whatever's going on. Because I think most of this stuff is complete bunk. You know, I think if we did, and actually, I'll take it a step further. Here's how I solve the problem. I'm listening. You're not allowed to use any of this crap at the Olympics until you have at least one well-conducted study. I think that would save me a massive headache. 
that's my supreme ruler of the universe. Yeah. That's where I'm going. Like, who needs world peace? I'm going to finally, research. yeah, get rid of hickeys on professional athletes. I would be totally okay with that. Yeah. It's not cupping, though, if you move while you do it. How do you become part of a review board? Um, email an editor. That's <laughs> like, uh, if you want to start getting into the peer review process out of the kindness of your heart, reach out to the editors of journals. Uh, reviewers are hard to come by these days. You want to talk about something that, uh, if, if I don't believe in altruism as a true principle, but, uh, that's certainly something that, uh, there. yeah, it's up there cause you're not getting paid. It's a thankless job. And like, but you once again, you get to find out what's in the sausage real fast. And if you're somebody who wants to start learning statistical methods, like I think that was one of the things I've garnered from reviewing because, you know, I'm not going to go do the calculations, but when the review comes back, I get to see the statistician that reviewed the paper's comments. So I, I can learn from how they're giving the feedback out of it as well. Um, but then, like, it kind of goes back to the, the advice for new grads, like, meet people. Yeah. Uh, and I know it's yep. rocket science <clears throat> advice, but the reason that I review for the journals that I do um, is just from random connections with physicians that I know who are way smarter than me in different fields. Ooh, interesting. How do you break down the surgeon in trying to push outside of the rehab protocol? For instance, pushing an ACL more than what is usually stated in the rehab protocol time frame. Same way you change behavior in other people. You talk to them, meet them where they're at, and explain your rationale. They may not listen. Yeah. Um, you're, you are a high-level clinician, and yes, you may burn some relationships out of it. But I still would say, if it's something that needs to occur for the patient, you are obligated to do said thing for the patient. But outside of one surgeon I can think of, like every one of them has been open to the discussion. And just like when we talked about this today, it doesn't change overnight. And I don't expect you guys to have your ACL squatting 225 pounds at six weeks post-op next week. And you kind of have to grade into that. And I also don't think a, a surgeon that I've never met before wouldn't freak out a little bit if he saw me doing it. And, you, you know, you'd maybe not come out of the gate with the most shocking stance. You know, ask, ask questions on why they think something is the way it is. Back to Supreme Ruler. Supreme Ruler, are there cultural shifts that would help humans cope better with our pain experiences? That's all you have a more nuanced understanding of pain experiences you know, multifactorial human experience with variable meanings based on a whole host of factors often in our world not related to a particular body state or disease status or pathophysiological or pathoanatomical issue i the whole reason like i'm conducting research is to figure out what do people believe in north america in hopes that i can eventually create educational campaigns to do just that what do, they, what do people currently believe in our society about pain experiences, in my context, specifically low back pain, and can we, if needed, reframe those beliefs at a macro level? Ideally, in order to inoculate them before they get into the healthcare system unnecessarily, and we do a lot of negative things to them, unfortunately. 
make mental health conversations normal. That would be my biggest one. Uh, we still stigmatize too many things that shouldn't be stigmatized. You know, depression, anxiety, and it all kind of leads to people not wanting to discuss their problems. And if we're talking about, like, experience, like, if I'm trying to change how you perceive an experience, we need to let you know you're not alone out there. And I think a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about how they're feeling, and by a lot of people, I will include myself in that. And... I think we would all be better served if we got a lot more comfortable talking about some of these hard conversations and how we're feeling about things and, and the problems we're experiencing. We would probably realize we're all much more similar than we are dissimilar. Yeah, that's if I, I don't know that that one would happen in our lifetime. No. I can dream, but I also think kind of with the shift towards social media, you lose some of that face-to-face -face interaction that is necessary in order to get through some of this. Like, the, the worst thing you can feel is alone, in pain or otherwise. Totally. And getting better about, like, just reaching out to your friends. Like, I, I had an athlete that I worked with for a while who I programmed for, and this was prior to COVID, but, like, his assignment every week beyond his training was to go out, be social for at least an hour because he had been dealing with stuff for so long that he didn't want to go out and hang out with his friends because he was worried about being a burden on them. I have also recommended that to folks. And you're like, yep. dude, like, this is a problem. Like, if we're talking about high-yield things, like, you got to get out and talk to your buddies. Like, if they're your buddies, they're they're not – I mean, I might dog you on it a little bit because I'm your friend, but, like – I'm also going to, you know, walk through the fire and back to help you get on the other side. So next. One, one day, healthcare may be incentivized towards less provision and actual performance. What does this look like in the perfect world from your perspective? Man, they are throwing some utopian questions yeah. at us today. Yeah. I'm just rereading it so I fully understand what I'm being asked. Vision and actual preference. What's the perfect world from your perspective? What do you think provision and actual performance means? Um, well, I think a lot of people, it, it's it's that whole how do you, uh, what outcome are we measuring here? Oh, I, I my bias, obviously, as someone who's very interested in pain, is to shift away from that being our focal point. It's going to get better over time in a lot of scenarios. And if we hyper-focus on this, it's a lot like the analogy Derek Austin used with, uses with significant others in breakups. Like, I probably don't need to focus as this as the only meaningful metric. I don't even need people to get rid of quantitative pain metrics. I'm just asking for you to layer in other things that are fundamentally more important, like what is a human value, which may be symptom reduction. But if we know anything we do can have an effect on symptom reduction, Maybe we focus more on forging relationships, beliefs, and behaviors and addressing the fundamental person in front of us. I mean, from, from a rehab standpoint, I think we, we need to get rid of timed units. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it's would... A system level yeah, and, but the problem is, as soon as we change that, somebody's going to find a way to game the system somewhere else, and, and that's going to be the, what's going to happen forever. 
but you know some people need to be in clinic for 20 minutes some people need to be there for two hours and i think it would be a pretty awesome system if like we ran it as more of a like gym and, and put some of the onus on people to you know come in be independent in what they're doing versus feeling like we need to be so hands-on with everything how do you change the idea that patients carry into the clinic that they require a service or rather they need some someone to do something for them this is coming from a customer service point of view the last part of it's the problem right that we've we've turned it into customer service like that is healthcare in our our society is the customer is always right and it's customer service we really screwed up when we made pain a fifth vital sign so then like any intervention you did was the whole premise was to drive down that number. And if I couldn't get it down, then re- <coughs> reimbursement suffered. And my, my reviews also suffered, which led to a lot of not great things. Like let's just give people opioids and not adequately assess the risk of actually doing that for persistent pain situations. So it, it, there, it's so many layers, but I think it starts with this idea of like healthcare is customer service instead of a universal human right that we as a society should set up for the person to have affordances to lead a healthy lifestyle. Um, I'll kind of take the less charitable stance on it and, and lean into the customer service. Like nobody wants to state it, but I, I'm go back to what I said earlier. Like this is a sales job and it's incumbent on you to be able to sell whatever the service is, whether it be like nothing or some interventions along the way, whatever needs to transpire. The issue, I would argue, isn't so much the the customer service side. It's the constant upselling that yeah, goes on. Totally. And it's like you're buying a car, and it's like, well, you need the platinum package. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Did you just compare I the did. human I interaction in to lecture. a car? I did it in my lecture earlier, wow. and I said the context of it. Wow, wow. Okay. All right. All right. I can. I hear you. Okay. Um, yeah. It's it's interesting. I think from the service industry side of it, like you're taught when you're like tending bar, waiting tables, like how to upsell. Yep. And like then you look in the rehab realm, and it's like take my master class and get seventy five new referrals and triple whatever your income is. And you're like, I get it. We all need to make money. I am. I am on board with that principle, but not at the expense of doing dumb stuff. That ultimately harms a person we're trying to help. Yeah. And like, it, it is that like, you have to be comfortable telling people like, you're going to be okay. You don't need anything from me. And I think, you know, as we've or i've moved into like the cash-based side of things like that is a a weird conversation like hold on you're paying me money to tell you you don't need me like yeah Uh, that That actually is the expertise happens all the time and and i get it like how that comes across but it goes back to i was telling them um i was having a conversation regarding some critical care hospital conversations and a hospital refusing or not refusing to say there was no evidence for an invasive procedure and the policy is they then go ask for other hospitals if they're willing to do it because they want to have a consensus 
Well, if you think about that from like a probability standpoint, like odds are you're going to catch somebody who's willing to give it a shot. And that's, I, I don't know that I think that's the way we should approach it. And I, I'm amazed we made it this far into this. Like, I think people should have to read philosophy and talk about ethics because that's really like it really is a, a what a lot of this is, is just straight up ethics. And, you know, if someone used the tactic that you're using on your mom, would you be cool with that sales tactic? And, like, I think that's a pretty easy fundamental way of approaching it. Yeah. yeah. And people don't like having these philosophical discussions, like what my pain lecture often turns into, but whether you admit to a philosophy or not, it's there, and it's dramatically influencing the things you do in clinical practice. It probably would help to sit down and read some philosophy to have an understanding of, is what I'm doing actually logical and makes sense? Okay. Um, I, I'm going to bend this one a little bit because I think... 17? Yeah, yeah, 16. Oh. Uh, so the question is, do you have preferred resources for exercise programming for fitness and health professionals, websites, books, etc.? Um, I'm going to reframe this a little bit. So, Mike, go through your exercise background, like how like bodybuilding to CrossFit oh. to... Like my history? Yeah. yeah. Also do you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I started resistance training in 2002. I did bodybuilding for about 10 years. I did my last show in 2012. Um, I met my wife in 2012 who was doing CrossFit. And she was like, hey, you should come like observe the class, which I did. And I was like, this is awesome. I know nothing about the stuff that I'm seeing, like clean and jerk, snatch, handstand push-ups, double unders, muscle-ups. And I liked it because I was like, I can't do these things. So it would be super cool to learn how to do it and progress at it. Did CrossFit for six years. After that, I switched over to powerlifting, partly because of barbell medicine. I was like, oh, this is cool. I've never competed in powerlifting. So I started trying to, you know, do more intensity and volume with squat, bench press, and deadlift. Competed in three competitions on that. And now just in the last year, I've switched over to weightlifting and I'll probably do a weightlifting comp next year. Uh, My hope is, is like, all of those experiences, I have a range of experiences that's built up a bigger base, so I'm more relatable to folks, but I also have a little bit of an understanding of what are they trying to accomplish and how can I best help them go do those things. So now I'll, I'll take it to the question. So what are your preferred resources as far as websites and books? And I would recommend going and engaging in a wide variety of activities and learning from that and talking to those folks because I now have friends that still do competitive CrossFit or bodybuilding or powerlifting or weightlifting. So my network has expanded dramatically because I was not afraid to get outside of my comfort zone and be like, I'm going to look like an idiot for a couple months or years. Here goes, which is exactly how I approach research, philosophy, topics that we've lectured on this weekend. Yeah, because I think when you're asking for these types of resources, like without knowing someone's background, it, it doesn't really make as much sense. Um, because I, I was a collegiate rower and then picked up what I can only refer to as a bro style of training as I got out of that. And then got into like more of the Jim Jones, which is certainly like an iteration of CrossFit. And went from there more into the powerlifting type side of things so 
for me, like the things that have had a big influence are mostly related to like kind of how I got where I am now. Like I, I think people should know what Prilipin's table is. And then I think they should forget that they know what Prilipin's table is. Like, I, I think Bompa's periodization book is yeah. absolutely spectacular. I, yes. Uh, reading people like John Kiley, who's yeah. going to be the antithesis to that discussion of periodization, yep. I also think you should do, you should hear the counter arguments. Yep. And, you know, going with people you disagree with. Um, as far as, like, the... I, I would be interested to hear, like, and I would be even more interested to hear if Jordan edits this out, but, like, if I were to say the three people that have had, like, a huge influence on me as far as, like, resources go, like, Dan John would be number one. And, like, I, like, have nothing but phenomenal things to say about him. Um, Greg Knuckles, yeah. huge influence. Started by science in general. Yeah. yeah. Like, conversations with Greg, you're always going to learn something. And then, uh, like probably have to give it to mark twight who is kind of funny because i'm pretty sure i would fundamentally disagree with like 80 percent of the things coming out of his mouth right now but like i wouldn't be where i am had i not went down that road i mean i still remember the first time i like saw the whole the mind is primary slogan and you're like yeah i can i can get down with this so yep uh crps what do uh, so chronic regional pain syndrome. Yeah, what do indeed? I mean, we don't know. It's, it's under the classification of persistent pain development. We don't have an answer to etiology. We don't have a specific thing to intervene upon as if the patient's an object. Someone develops persistent pain, often in post-trauma or post-surgical situations in that area that had the trauma or the post-surgery. We don't know why. The hope is, is we can educate about the multifactorial aspect of having persistent pain, but even with or without CRPS as a label, I don't personally think it meaningfully changes the things I'm going to do with someone. And then can I get them to engage their world over time at the level they want to that gives them back the identity that they want to have? Yeah, I mean, uh, CRPS, even like getting the label is an interesting discussion of itself, mm -hmm. but it's it's a lot of talking with people finding out why they think what they think and like get comfy because you're going to be there having those conversations for a while you can do things like uh, mirror therapy or some of the desensitization training and i think those are like integral components of what you need to do in order to address this but in the in the grand scheme of things a lot of it is like having those conversations about how they're feeling, what's going on in finding ways to like listen, meet the person where they're at and then like reframe their experience back to them. Like I, I it's, it's <clears throat> talking to people's tough. Like in CRPS is like, it's definitely one you, you're, you are cut from a special cloth. If, if you enjoy doing that, the, lab, the way we, that we're educated, thinking like, oh, I have this label now that I can run away with and do something to to correct this label issue, totally misses a human in front of you. And I'm often left in the position of like, cool, I have a label, now what? I still have a human being who's having an experience that's looking to me for help to work through their experience. So it's going to be a question of how meaningful is this label? How is it going to change what I need to do to help the human in front of me, not the chronic regional pain syndrome label? 
Um, someone asked what my favorite ramen recipe is. Whoever that was, if you want to like just send me a message, I'll give it to you because like I definitely cannot do that off the top of my head. But I do like I'll sidebar tangent for just a second on this because I think ramen is like the perfect representation of like what we do in nuance. Because when most of us think ramen, we think like that package for ninety nine cents yeah. that I ate in college. Yeah, yeah. And like ramen has five components to it, and, and that really shapes the entire dish. So you have your broth, your tare, your meat, your veg, and then oil. And like depending on how you titrate, all five of those can give you an entirely different experience. And you know if you <laughs> if you want to like man, if you want to talk about like getting good at the basics. Start start attempting to make ramen eggs. Like, you're boiling an egg, and I am comfortable saying if I had some hot plates and we did a little exercise right now, we might have, like, a 15% success rate. Like, and I've made hundreds of them now, and I'm comfortable. I, I normally hit, like, in the 80% realm now. And you think about something that is as simple as just, like, boiling an egg... And, like, your margin of error there is so thin that, like, it's kind of hilarious. And when you're talking about, like, ramen, everybody pictures the crappy stuff you eat at 2 a.m. after you've had a few too many cheap domestics when, like, if you've ever had good ramen, holy God, it's a life-changing dish. Like, if you're ever in California, I got some wrecks for you. To the point that you might not want ramen. Yeah. Well, it's that's well. See, we're now we're back to a dosage conversation. <laughs> you titrated up my dosage yeah. very quickly. Yeah, it's. I really. I've actually been. It's almost cold enough in Ohio now to where I feel like making ramen. And next time, I think I'm going to go like full send on cooking with adhesions, just because as I'm sitting here doing all this, like. I typically am like, how does this analogy work through? And how does this analogy work through? And like ramen is pretty spectacular analogy for like patient care, nuance, all that stuff. Because like you like think about most patient experiences too. Like if a patient comes to PT, odds are they didn't have the best experience just if we're playing probability out of it. And then like when you figure out like what good care is, you're like, Oh, I, I wasted a lot of time on my 2 a.m. 99-cent ramen. Yep. Yeah. I also have some brands of that, though, that I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> God. Uh, why does low back pain seem like it is so nebulous, culture-related? I, I don't even know where to go with this. Um, human existence is somewhat nebulous. You define your own meaning. I'll take it the existentialist route. Okay. Like, Every like it's it's pain. It's a multifactorial experience, not just in the low back. Low back just means it's in that region. So by nature, human experiences are at the individual level that are shaped by the society that you live in. They're going to be nebulous. It's hard to get beyond that. I would say embrace it. Yeah, I, I tend to look at like questions like this and like substitute out low back pain with like love. Because you asked the question, like, like, why does love seem like it's so nebulous, culture-related? Yeah. You're like, everyone in here is like, oh, yeah, I can I can wrap my mind around that one a little bit. And, like, pain is also an experience that has a huge emotional component. And, like, you know, we don't choose who we fall in love with most of the time. And we don't have a whole lot of say in when we're going to have some pain most of the time either. It's like 
once the experience manifests itself, what do we do with it? Here we are. It's, you write country music. That's what you do with it. Well. What do we do about the manual laborer who could be objectively strong and sleeps well, who still has a great deal of back pain that alters his ADLs? Oh, I talked about social determinants of health earlier. Uh, I did a neck pain series earlier this year. And one of the big things that came out of me, like reading up to write that series was one of the primary determinants is like work-related influence. What is your autonomy in the workplace like? Do you have freedom to make decisions? Do you feel supported? Do your coworkers support you? Do your, does your boss support you? Uh, do you have affordances within the workplace? At some point you may be like, I don't need to work here any longer because this is a primary driver of my situation. And it's at the individual level, like no one really can step in and be like, you got to do this. You probably should quit because it's more of a stressor than it is a benefit. So how we influence that stuff, we struggle with. I don't know. Like we can learn about social determinants of health all day long and how it influences people's sustainment, development, and recurrence of persistent pain. But at, at some point, we're going to have to take action and make a cultural and society level shift in how we do things. What do we value? In our world, in our society, to take it the capitalist route, we value profitability over all else. The employee or worker be damned in a lot of situations. That's probably not the best work environment. Yeah, there's obviously layers to this, but all like my mind keeps going to right now is like, how many manual laborers do you guys interact with regularly that aren't in pain? And and that's my point isn't that manual labor causes pain it's like no no it's not even that how often you guys talk to manual laborers so maybe part of the communication is the fact that like you just legit don't know how to talk to this human like as i've had probably like nine people since i've been in town be like i can't believe you drove down and like i think part of it is i i can just tune out for a while but I also think it's important to like see some of those like rural towns along the way. Like if you ever drive cross country, like people skip a lot because it's like I can fly there now. And but I think I know like, man, so what I have learned, the states I have lived in, um, West Virginia, South Carolina, Florida, California, Ohio. I think I'm like Mississippi and Texas away from checking bingo of every state that catches crap for everything. And what I can tell you is every time I move to a new one, they're like, I can't believe you lived in California. What a weird place. I'm like, have you ever been? No. All right. Um, we're done here. Man, you lived in Florida. What about all the crazy people there? It turns out they're my friends. I'm going to go shrimping with some of them next week. But I know how to talk to them. And, and like, if we're going to have this, like, what do we do about the manual labor who could be objectively strong? Like, all right, cool. Like, maybe go meet some manual laborers see what's going on in their lives or do manual labor yeah or yeah do some, do some manual labor like you know get it's i grew I, up in it so like that's you know i just don't know another way of like addressing this because it's like most of the time when i get it i'm like okay here's what's going to happen we're going to find our common ground and then we're going to figure out what adls you're having trouble with and what i can modify out of it and like all and it's crazy how much distrust all of my or a lot of my friends and family in rural west virginia have for health care 
and it is because just the objective quality is so horrendous out of it and things are so procedural based i get it i wouldn't go to the physician either and like if you look at it like how this is a societal question this isn't like a this dude question like it's just disparity between the people going on like i i go home and talk to people and they tell me like what's going on with their health care and it's just like wow is like the only way i know how to say it and you know if you want to see how good you have it go work in a rural clinic for a couple months i guarantee you, you'll come back thinking you're at the top of the world do you think uh, what what do you think osteoporosis is a childhood epidemic context because so few kids meet pa guidelines we see an influx of op if these trends continue uh, no i wouldn't go as far as to call it an epidemic I, I think like physical inactivity is an epidemic and it's like which prize are you going to win from not meeting the guidelines i think some of this is coming out of the idea that osteoporosis isn't really a geriatric issue but it's more of a pediatric based on when bone mineral density starts to solidify yeah and i get that but yeah. like it, i still I, I just am picturing like the public messaging campaign here well, that's the issue right it's like how does this yes how is the messaging received or viewed yeah and i, I think if, if you meet physical activity guidelines you have proper nutrition and i understand i'm giving very like strict criteria out of this but like it's not like everybody has access to all of this and we're back in the social determinants of health conversation yeah, again it, it's easy um i teach several health and exercise science classes when i'm talking to them it's like it's easy to say eat less move more but what's your built environment like and where you live do you feel safe going out into that society and being physically active are you working two jobs a day and the only happiness you can find is smoking some cigarettes like these are societal level issues where we're blaming the individual and although they have a role, it's much bigger than the person in front of you. When we start addressing the societal level issues, people have been doing it for quite some time. It's just change at that level is abysmally slow, almost imperceptible. I just finished reading this book called Acquired Tastes and it's a lot of like uh, food systems history. It's like 12 separate essays and it's always interesting to start reading like some of these historical perspectives on like uh you know kellogg and, and like how the the sanitarium went through things and you read it and you're like oh so this was like 1936 and legit it is the exact same argument we're having today and i don't think a lot of this stuff is going away but like I don't know, you slowly get better at getting the reps out of it. Um, in regards to imaging, thoughts on items such as the Ottawa ankle rules, Nexus CT scan criteria, Canadian C-spine rules. I'm a fan. Yeah, I think you do need some type of criteria to make decisions from. I'm totally okay with something like Ottawa ankle rules if you're worried about ruling out a fracture in an ankle sprain scenario. It, it will most likely ensure you're just not universally imaging everyone unnecessarily. I'm fine with it. Yeah, I don't have anything to add there. In clients who do not have bona fide goals for their fitness, what would it look like to address pain with their favorite exercise? I can't seem to let go of a hip thrust. Hashtag peach gang. 
I, I actually like this. You go ahead. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it depends on like how much they're doing their uh, favorite exercise. I, I, th- <laughs> I have no problem if someone wants to do hip thrusts. Uh, I would probably be like hip thrusts and <laughs> like what else what can, can we do? do? Like, yeah. uh, I, anytime there's just that one thing there. Like, I think it's pretty easy for us to just frame this question. Like, they can't seem to let go of squat, bench, deadlift. I'm like, well, that's my daily life. And like, and it's like, there are other things that you can do. We purposefully program random shit just to get people to realize, like, there's more than an SBD to life. How about a Turkish get up? And, and it's always striking that balance. And I have this conversation with athletes and clients all the time between the program I want you to do and the program you want to do. Yeah. And sometimes, like, I need to push you hard to do something that you don't want to do. Like, you, if you are coming back from a muscle injury, sorry, you're going to get some isolated work. This is kind of a non-negotiable to come back from it. Yep. But in the same regard, like, if you're like, I hate prone hamstring curls, but seated hamstring curls are okay. I'm not going to be like, ah, no, nah, man, we got to go prone. It's isolation work. That's all I can yeah. Do. Like, and, and it's finding that mix out of everything. But, like, I am notorious for, like, at the end of programs, just writing in some random exercise. And, like, it has no function other than the fact that it's something else. Variety. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if you see, like, if you see a lot of my programs, like, everything will make sense except for the last exercise. You're like, where is he going with this? And I'm like, well, the principle of where I'm going with it is to do something completely off the wall. And, like, I I feel like it kind of keeps you on your A game, and sometimes people do stuff, and like, I really like that. you're like, you never would have known if I didn't give you something completely random in here. Yep. Oh, that's it. All right. Nice. Good talk. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having us. All right, that's a wrap on episode 158. Big thanks to doctors Derek Miles and Michael Ray for recording this Q&A. Uh, before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest information, latest nuance in health and fitness. And we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.